when we first moved to, to, to Huntsville, the Huntsville area, we purchased a season pass to the Space and Rocket Center. Um, if anybody who knows me, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm probably an engineer at heart um, uh, and, and just I'm super fascinated, always have been with aerospace and space. And I, and I passed that bug down to one of my sons, at least. Um, Luke is totally obsessed. And so our, our season passes, they expired years ago. Uh, well, my in-laws gave us for Christmas, season passes again. And so on New Year's Eve, we took our kids for the first time again this year. Um, and we took my oldest son. And, and my oldest son, he is just super captivated by the engineering marvels that were the rockets that took uh, men to the moon and have been just continuing to do work with the International Space Station, my, my oldest son, he is just totally enthralled by that. My middle son, he, he's more or less, he's just, just give him a, something sugary, a cake or cookies or something. That's, that's what really gets him uh, pumped. But, but my oldest son is enthralled by and captivated by um, rockets and about just aerospace, planes, everything. Uh, but you think about this. We are hardwired and created to worship. You are created to worship. We are created for glory. We are hardwired to live in wonder and amazement. And so these small expressions of wonder and amazement that, that really are in us all, in my oldest son about rockets and airspace and my, my middle son about donuts and my, my younger son about, I don't know, Spider-Man. We all have this wonder and amazement that, 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 that is in us. We're hardwired to be this way. You and I were created to be connected to something that will satisfy our deepest longings. And desires. You and I were created to praise. We were created to be captivated. Our hearts are always captivated by something. And that's how God made us. But we know that sin it threatens to distract us from the glory of our Creator. All too often we stand in captivation of everything else. Other than God. And so clean, sin excuse me, clouds and, and, and distorts us into being captivated by, uh, by the created things rather than the creator. So Psalm 145, our passage this morning, is a response of a heart that has been captivated by God. And I thought this might be appropriate as we enter into this new year. right? We enter into 2020. May our hearts be captivated by God and the glory of the gospel. So I wanted to show you a psalm this morning. Psalm 145, a response of a heart that has been captivated by God. And this is the, 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 the result is unending praise to God. And here's the, the, the last of David's psalms. The last words from David that we have recorded in the Bible. 
In many ways, the, the, the Psalter is David's book. Uh, he is the author of more psalms than, than anyone else. A total of 75 of the 150 songs David is attributed to writing. And David was certainly the, the obvious choice to write most psalms, being the, the sweet singer of Israel, as the Bible tells us. A talented musician who often in his younger years would play the harp for Saul. He was a man after God's own heart. Possessing a high view of God and a command, he had commanding communication skills, David became in reality the worship leader of the entire Bible. In this, the, the last of David's psalms, we are not surprised to find that it is a powerful song of praise to God. And one of the most God-exalting chapters in the Bible. I know Sarah always gets in, she always says, you always use these superlatives. Like, this is the best chapter. This is the most important chapter in all the Bible. I know I probably say that a lot. This really is one of the most God-exalting chapters in all the Bible. Uh, David shows us the overflow of his heart, right? It's like taking a cup and you pour water into it to the point where it begins to spill over the edges and overflows. This is what we see happening out of the heart of David. Keep in mind, this is after his great sin with Bathsheba, where he, mar- where he murders uh, her husband and all of this. He has experienced praise, I mean, he has experienced grace and mercy like like none other. And so he shows us a heart that has been truly captivated by the greatness and the grace of God. In Psalm 145, we get to see David worship. We get to see a man worship. So now it must be noted that, that David is writing this psalm. 14 generations before Christ would come. 14 generations. However, he is looking forward in faith to the coming Messiah. And I like what Jonathan Edwards says about the Psalms. That God gave us the Psalms in order to teach us of Christ. My aim for preaching this Psalm is to expose to you the ultimate greatness of God. And to see a man's heart that was captivated by God. That your hearts would leave captivated by the grace of God and Christ this morning. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that is our aim today. That you would leave here singing a praise unto the Lord. So my approach to this passage... Again, this is impromptu and quick. Uh, We're just going to read the passage. We're going to kind of walk through it. It's going to seem more like an outline, probably. It's not going to have three points. We're actually going to have six points because I just want to break it out. But it's not as dramatic as that sounds. Um, But let's just jump right in. How about that? I want you to see the heart behind this psalm. The first thing I want you to see is a heart captivated by God is resolved to bring praise to the Lord. A heart captivated by God is resolved 
to bring praise to the Lord. Verses 1 through 3. I will exalt you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David is revealing a deliberate and determined resolve to praise the Lord. And this praise is a purposeful choice of David's will. His exaltation is informed by his captivation. To extol or exalt means to elevate to a high place or to lift up. It's the, it's the picture of majesty. And David's choice to raise high the name of God above all other names. And notice his choice wording used to describe his relationship with God. Notice he doesn't simply say, I will exalt the God and King as a distant, transcendent being that cannot be known. Rather, this lofty adoration flows out of a personal relationship with my God. A relationship that had been initiated by God's sovereign choice. And through this divine relationship, David had seen the unsearchable greatness of God. And David pledges to bless him every day, to praise his name forever and ever. Forever and ever. Every day, exalting and praising God for his greatness. Now, can we be honest for a moment? Or at least, can I be honest for a moment? How many of us can honestly say that this is something you're characterized by every single day of your life? Forever and ever. Every day, exalting and praising God for his greatness. It's possible to go through a spiritual dry spell in your life every once in a while. And even if we are in Christ, we will likely go through these seasons of drought of spiritual life. And we won't feel like praising God. But in those moments, this is exactly when God shows you grace. And shows you that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Passages like this should cause us to examine ourselves. I think you'll find that even though you may not be exalting Christ, you will be exalting something else in God's place. As we said earlier, you were created to worship. You never take a break from worshiping. The the true question is, what is the object of your worship? And just to... By way of illustration, because I I know I'm lacking in this sermon illustration, let me just drop this. This idea of worship is worthship. You're you're just expressing worth. And like we were talking about earlier, you know, you go to a good restaurant, you go to a new restaurant, you enjoy it. What do you do? What do you what do you generally do? You go to a good restaurant. You tell people about it, right? You should go to this restaurant. You should go check out this coffee shop. It's amazing. You realize that's an expression of worth. That is worship. We were created to do just those things. And so when I say either we're going to worship God or we're going to worship the created things, there's a way to worship, there's a way to exalt the created things in such a way to bring glory and honor to God. 
but you can also get those out of place. Why is it that so many men in our culture can tell you any statistic or fact you want to know about Alabama or Auburn football? But they can't tell you the last time they led their family in worship. Why is it that when you ask some men about their favorite hobby, maybe hunting or fishing or working on their classic car, they turn into Rain Man and spit out all kinds of stuff and information. But when you ask them about God or the things of God, they look at you with a blank stare. Why is it that so many parents can tell you anything you could ever want to know about their kids' sports, their academics, or their friends, so on and so forth, but if you ask them about the spiritual status of their kids, they give you vague general answers. Oh, they go to church, they, they attend Sunday school, they do those things. And they can't tell you anything about their specific heart Spiritual struggles. And why does this happen? I want to submit to you that it is a captivation problem. John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols. A factory of idols. Listen to me. Listen to me closely here. This, there, there is a war that's being waged over the turf of your heart. There is a spiritual battle that's happening. And the object of your worship is going to, that's the first thing the heart is going to attach to. The object, something to worship. And it's easy for our worship to be misplaced. Which is why we need to be reminded often of the glory of the gospel. Someone here might need to be captivated for the first time. I'm not sure of that. But one thing I do know for sure, Jesus came to win our hearts back to God. To win back our captivation of God. And we'll see this more as the psalm unfolds. But someone who's captivated by God will be someone who is intentional by praising God. Then we see a heart captivated. A captivated heart praises him. For his greatness. Verses 4 through 7. One generation shall commend your works to another. And shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of abundant goodness. And shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Here. Here we see how a very intentional disciple-making process being unfolded before our eyes in these few verses. One where one generation is proclaiming the wondrous works of God to the next generation. This is grandfathers pouring into their sons and then pouring into their grandsons and so on and so forth. And notice the, prog- the progression here. Commendation to the next generation, verse 4, turns into meditation in the next generation, verse 5, 
which, which results in exaltation by the next generation, verses 6 through 7. This will not happen by accident. It will not happen through osmosis. It happens when we are intentional to, to weave the good news of the gospel into all of our life. When, when you're at the dinner table, make an effort to talk about the things of the Lord. When you're, at, when you're in the car, and you're sitting in traffic, or you're waiting in the car line, use these opportunities to, to ask your children heart and thought-provoking questions about their spiritual life. Help your kids learn to view the culture around them through the lens of the gospel. Tell them about the immeasurable grace of God that he has shown you personally and that you know and observe through his word and through the lives of other people the immeasurable grace he continues to show others. Give them hope. Hope to deal with their struggling lack of captivation to God. Tell them about the immeasurable grace of God. This passage clearly shows us what we think about the most will be what we talk about the most. And what we talk about the most will be what we're best known for. David was captivated by God, so he thought about God often. Which in turn, he talked about God. And what is David best known for? not his hobbies. It's not his interests. We know that he was a man after God's own heart. Despite all the wicked, wicked things that he did. So what are, what are we best known for? Well, what am I best known for? What are you best known for? A heart captivated by God will praise him for his greatness and look for every opportunity to tell others about what he has done for us in Christ. Let's also see that a captivated heart praises him for his grace. A captivated heart praises him for his grace. Verses 8 through uh, the first part of 13. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your majesty, your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is gracious, having pity and compassion on those who are in need. He is slow to anger, patient, long-suffering, extending time to repent, and rich in love. Being unconditionally committed to, to seeking the highest good of those whom he loves. So God is good to all, even to enemies, showing them common grace. He is not merely good to the good, but he shows favor to the undeserving. Praise God for that. Delaying his judgment, extending further opportunities to repent. 
A heart that's truly captivated by God is one that, that recognizes the immeasurable grace that God has shown them. You can't, hear me, you can't be an adopted child of God and not be totally blown away by the grace of God. You were once an enemy of God that deserved to be crushed. Now you're sitting at his dining table and he's given you a spiritual blessing that is Jesus Christ's blessing. An inheritance that is Jesus Christ is given to you and he has shown you this unmerited favor. He didn't give you what you truly deserve. That's mercy and that's grace. If you have no praise for the grace of God, then I'm just not convinced you've ever experienced the grace of God. Heart captivated by God will praise Him for His grace. Let's also see how a captivated heart praises Him for His faithfulness. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. The Lord upholds all who are falling. And raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all who of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And the end of verse 13 and 14 reminds us that the Lord is faithful to all his promises. Every one of them. God says he's gonna do it. Rest assured, he's gonna do it. You could set your watch to it almost. Remind us, this reminds us that, that he is faithful to keep his word. He, he is loving to all the people he made, faithfully executing his promise. God upholds the life of all, providing for our needs. God lifts us, he lifts, he lifts up all who are bowed down under the heavy trials of life, strengthening them. So they can endure through their burdens. We also see in verses 15 through 15 and 16, David praises God as he restores all who are dependent on him. While he does not always do so immediately, he does it in the proper time. And God does open his hand to provide for the needs of his own children. In doing so, God satisfies their desires. Their bodies are fed and strengthened. And their hearts are gratified and gladdened. Some, captivated by God, will not miss the faithfulness of God. Therefore, a heart captivated by God will praise him for his faithfulness. And the, then we see a heart captivated by God praises him for his righteousness. A heart captivated by God praises him for his righteousness. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also fears their cry, hears their cry, and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Once again, we see David praises God because he is righteous towards his people, always just 
in all his ways. He never deals with his creatures wrongly, nor does he ever mismanage them with inequity. God is inherently loving, never needlessly harsh. He's not whimsical in his love for his people. God is near to those in need, ready to extend favor. He does not abandon his people who confess his name. Rather, he comes to the aid of all who call on him with grace, for grace and love. David pens this psalm believing that God would one day send the Messiah. We now read this psalm fully knowing the immeasurable grace of God that he has shown us in the Messiah. Jesus Christ came to live a life that you and I could not live. And he died a death that you and I deserve to die. Conquering an enemy that you and I could not conquer. And he's risen from the grave. And and why did he do it? To win back our captivation to God. So what's the final result of a heart that has been captivated by the gospel? We get to see it here. The captivated heart is resolved to live for the glory of God. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Our ultimate purpose in life is to bring glory to God. That's why you were created. That's why you're here today. And that's why you're going to go to work tomorrow. This is your purpose. You could stop wasting your time in that purpose section in Barnes and Noble. It's a waste of your time. The word of God is clear. You were created for the glory of God. Our ultimate purpose in life is to bring him glory. To live for his glory and not our own. I want to close with this. What does this functionally look like? Captivation of God should in some way motivate everything I do and say. Captivation of God should be the reason I do what I do with my thoughts. It should be the reason I desire what I desire. Captivation of God should be the reason I treat my wife the way I do or should and parent my children in the manner that I do. And when I fail in this area, I know, it's, I know ultimately it's a captivation problem. It usually means I'm captivated by myself or my selfish desires. It should be the reason I function the way I do at my job or handle my finances the way I do. It should structure the way I think about possessions and positions and power. Captivation of God should shape and motivate my relationship with my extended family, my neighbors, and the way I show them hospitality. Captivation of God should give direction to the way I live as a citizen in the wider community. It should form the way I think about myself and my expectations of others. Captivation of God should lift me out of my darkest moments of of discouragement 
and be the source of the most exuberant celebration in what he has done for us in the, in, in, in the gospel. Captivation of God should make me more self-aware, more mournful of my sin. While it makes me more patient with and tender toward the weakness, weaknesses of others. It should give me courage. I would find no other way and wisdom to know when I am out of my league. Captivation of God is meant to rule over Every domain of my existence. But there is more. Captivation of God must dominate my and the rest of your pastor's ministry. Because the one central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus is to give people back their captivation of God. I mean, that, that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're here for. To, for, to show you the glorious work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and win back that captivation. A human being not, not living with functional captivation of God is profoundly disadvantaged. He or she is off the rails, so to speak, trying to propel the train of his life or her life in a pile of sinking sand. And they may not even know it. When captivation of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by captivation of ourselves. If you are not living for God, the only other alternative is to live for yourself. So a church must be a place where we turn people back to the one thing of which you were created. To live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful captivation of God. And this means every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by captivation of God. Now, I'll tell you, that's not perfect all the time. And I struggle with this. I mean, even this Bible reading plan. I, I, be honest with you. Can I be honest with you? The Bible reading plans sometimes are the most discouraging things. You can give your people. You get a day or two behind, and all of a sudden you start feeling guilt. Man, if I just read my Bible, maybe God will show me some more. Listen, that is, that is Satan whispering in your ear. Time in the Word is to be treasured, is to be... We should, it actually takes intentional effort. It's a grace-driven effort, as Tim Keller talks about. Sanctification, it, it actually takes effort, but it's grace-driven. We're dependent upon the grace of God, and God will show you mercy. God's not interested in those little check marks that you put beside on that little paper reading plan. God's not interested in those things. God will show you mercy despite your consistency. <laughs> Praise God for that. But children's ministry must have... At its goal, to ignite in young children a life-shaping captivation of God. The student ministry of the church must move beyond Bible entertainment and do all it can to help teenagers, the future church, the church right now, see God's glory and name it as the thing for which they will live. 
Women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves, from a myriad of self-interest that nip at their hearts. Captivation of God provides this rescue. The same is true for men. Men's ministries need to, be, need to recognize the coldness in the heart of so many men to the things of God. And confront them and stimulate men with their identity as the created, as those created to live and lead out of a humble zeal of God's glory rather than for their own. Missions and evangelism, too, must be captivation driven. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul argues that this is the reason for the cross. This is the reason for the cross. He says that Jesus came so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. Only powerful grace can keep this captivation alive. It's not going to be your white-knuckling effort. Only the grace of God will sustain you. And he is eager, listen, eager to give it to you. God is benevolent with his grace and mercy. He loves you. He delights in you despite your fickle affections. This is something I have to tell myself all the time. God is for you. He is not against you. And as Romans 8 tells us, you're battling with that inward desire. You know in your head what you should do, but your flesh, your, there's this war being waged. Romans 8 is an encouragement to you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And it ends with there's no separation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not your missed reading plan. Not your captivation to your work or to your, your children or to whatever that may be. God is eager to show you grace if you simply cry out for it. So that's what I want to leave us with today. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do praise you, Father, for the unmerited favor and, and mercy that you have shown us in Christ. God, we pray that you would captivate our hearts by the glorious work of the gospel. That 2020 would be a year marked with a greater understanding of our greatest need, of our deepest need, which is we need Christ, we need the gospel, we need grace. Because in our own effort, we will fail every single time. But despite those limitations, despite our sinful nature, despite 
all of those things, God, you saw fit to send your son to die in my place, to die in our place for all those who profess that Jesus is Lord, who, who repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ alone. They're resting not in their own efforts, but they're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, we, we are desperate for you to captivate our hearts with that message, with the good news of the gospel. So God, I pray that as we leave today, we would leave with captivation over your grace, captivation over your mercy. And we would, as the psalmist tells us, as David tells us, commend your glorious works to the next generation. We can't help but to proclaim the goodness of Christ to others. And Lord, we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.